the 9th of November and welcome to this Wednesday edition of Crow 24. I'm your host, Kwan Jamal. Prosecutors have raided the house and office of a close aide of Lee Jae-myung, the main opposition Democratic Party chairman, in a probe of bribery allegations. We'll have more on this story in our news briefing shortly. The seventh wave of COVID-19 infections has begun in Korea, according to health authorities. We discuss the current pandemic situation and what lies ahead for our in-depth day. And coming up on Korea Book Club, we take a look at a short story by Hwang Jung-un on the seemingly impossible struggle to escape from debt. Let's begin Korea 24. Prosecutors have closed in on another close confidant of the main opposition Democratic Party chairman and former presidential candidate Lee Jae-myung. His aides' home and office were raided by the prosecution in their probe of bribery allegations that is said to have occurred under Lee's watch while he was the governor of Gyeonggi province. For more on this and our other headlines of the day, we're joined in the studio by KBS World Radio news editor Eunice Kim. Eunice, hello. Hello. So this is the second confidant of Lee Jae-myung to be raided after Kim Yong. Can you tell us what we know? Yeah, the Seoul Central District Prosecutor's Office on Wednesday morning sent investigators into the home of Chung Jin Sang. He is the head of the party chair's policy coordination office. Uh, investigators were also dispatched to the DP headquarters in Yeoido, where Chung's office is located, though they were once again met with resistance there. Chung, who is regarded as one of two closest aides to party leader Lee Jae-myung along with Kim Yong, is a accused of receiving a total of 140 million won from key figures involved in the high-profile Daejangdong development scandal, which occurred between 2013 and 2020. The raid comes as Kim Yong, the deputy head of the DP's Institute for Democracy think tank, was indicted the day before on charges of receiving 847 million won in illegal political funds through the development scandal. Meanwhile, there was another raid today, this one by the police. A special investigative headquarters under the Korean National Police Agency raided the Hamilton Hotel in Itaewon, which stands to one side of the alley where more than 150 people lost their lives. So why was the hotel raided? Yeah, so the police headquarters sent 14 investigators to three locations on Wednesday, including the hotel and the residence of its chief executive to obtain documents regarding hotel operations and licensing. Uh, Earlier in the day, the headquarters launched a formal investigation against the chief executive on charges of unauthorized structural constructions around the hotel and the unauthorized use of roads for private purposes. The headquarters is expected to verify how big of an effect the hotel's quote-unquote illegal structures had on the fatalities based on an analysis of seized data and an on-site inspection. Sticking with the Itaewon disaster, the government plans to devise comprehensive disaster and safety measures by the end of the year to prevent a recurrence of the Itaewon crowd crush. That's right. Minister of the Interior and Safety Lee Sung-min, in his opening remarks at a meeting on Wednesday, announced that a pan-government task force will be established to overhaul the country's disaster and safety management system. The Interior Minister said the government will devise comprehensive safety 
safety measures by the end of the year, which will include steps to improve the initial response system. He said they will also include preventive and science-based disaster management, as well as steps to enhance the ability to cope with complex and massive disasters. Meanwhile, the main opposition Democratic Party and two minor political parties are set to request a parliamentary investigation into the cause of the horrific Itaewon crowd crush that killed more than 150 people. Yeah, there's been a fair amount of debate about this as the ruling People Power Party has maintained that priority should be given to the outcome of the ongoing police investigation and consider a parliamentary probe at a later date if necessary. However, the main opposition Democratic Party, which has criticized the National Police Agency for leading the investigation into its own response to the crush, widely considered deficient, plans to put to motion a parliamentary probe request during Thursday's That is tomorrow's plenary session. Once the request is reported, the National Assembly Speaker is able to form a special committee through consultation with the heads of negotiation groups. The DP is expected to be supported by the Minor Justice Party and the Basic Income Party, as well as a group of independent lawmakers that had defected from the DP. Let's move on to some other headlines now. There are a number of international diplomatic gatherings in the region this month. And it's been announced that President Yoon Sung-yeol will depart for a six-day trip to Cambodia and Indonesia later this week for the ASEAN, East Asian Summit and G20 meetings. Yeah, indeed. His National Security Advisor Kim Sung-han on Wednesday saying the president will depart for Phnom Penh on Friday to attend a summit with leaders of ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, before the ASEAN Plus 3 summit, which is slated for Saturday. The East Asia Summit will follow on Sunday, where President Yoon will explain South Korea's basic stance on regional and international issues while emphasizing Seoul's active determination to contribute toward freedom, peace, and prosperity in the region. The president will then head to Bali to attend the G20 summit set for next Tuesday and speak at sessions on the issues of food, energy, security, and health. Kim said President Yoon's upcoming trip, his first East Asia tour, Southeast Asia tour, that is, since assuming office comes amid pending domestic issues and that the government will do its best to reap substantial results from the upcoming tour. Meanwhile, as ballots are being counted in the U.S. midterm elections, North Korea has fired a ballistic missile towards the East Sea on Wednesday. Can you tell us more? Yes, it wasn't a nuclear test uh, that some North Korea watchers were watching for given the U.S. midterm elections. But South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff said it detected at 3.31 p.m. one short-range ballistic missile launched from North Korea's Sukchon, that is in the South Pyongyang province. The missile had an altitude of 30 kilometers, a flight distance of 290 kilometers, and a maximum speed of Mach 6. Uh, The resumption of missile fire does come four days after its last provocation on Saturday. The regime had fired up more than 30 missiles between November 2nd and 5th, including an intercontinental ballistic missile, while South Korea and the U.S. were holding their joint vigilant storm aerial exercises. The latest launch comes as South Korea Korea's military is engaged in the week-long computer-simulated Taeguk drills. In related news, a South Korean military retrieved debris from one of those missile firings last week. 
which it believes is from a North Korean SA-5 surface-to-air missile. That's right. You'll recall that there was one missile that flew south of the northern limit line, the de facto maritime border, within 57 kilometers to South Korea's coastal town of Sokcho. The defense ministry said today that it salvaged parts of that missile last Sunday, and after analysis, it came to that conclusion that it was debris from the SA-5. This Soviet-era SA-5 can also be used as a surface-to-surface missile, which the ministry said... Uh, is happening in Russia's recent attacks against Ukraine. Photos of SA-5 missiles were among those unveiled by North Korea on Monday as it released detailed accounts of what it called a four-day military operation last week held in response to the joint South Korea-U.S. aerial drills. Going back to the midterm elections in the United States, results are trickling in. And Korean-American Andy Kim, the representative from New Jersey, was confirmed to have won a historic third term in Congress. Can you tell us more? Yes, the AP and others have called New Jersey's District 3 for Andy Kim, with 95% of the ballots counted. With the win, he becomes only the second Korean-American to win a third term in the U.S. legislature. The last such feat was in the previous millennia. Former Republican Representative Jay Chung. Jun Kim of California's 41st District served from 1993 to 1999, becoming the first congressman of Korean descent to serve three terms. A second-generation Korean-American and an expert in security in the Middle East, Andy Kim began working for the U.S. Department of State in 2009, serving as an advisor at the Pentagon and the White House National Security Council during the Barack Obama government. Uh, Both are being tallied, but leading in the ballot counts are also Congresswoman Marilyn Strickland of Washington State's 10th Congressional District, Young Kim of California's District 39, and Michelle Park Steele of California's District 45, all of Korean descent. And finally, with the winter resurgence of COVID-19 upon the nation, the government has pledged to focus on the vaccination and treatment of people in high-risk groups. Right. The Central Disease Control Headquarters confirmed the pandemic's seventh wave in the country has begun. Interior Minister Lee Sang-min declaring the winter wave of the pandemic in progress during today's COVID meeting, saying the virus transmission has been on the rise for four straight weeks and the reproduction rate has been above one for Three, Noting the number of critical cases and deaths, as well as the bed occupancy rate also surging, the ministry said the government will seek to increase the vaccination and treatment rate for those at high risk. Authorities once again urged the public to get their booster shots ahead of the winter season to avoid severe symptoms and to adhere to basic quarantine habits, such as consistent ventilation of spaces and indoor mask usage. That's all for our news briefing today. Eunice, thank you for those updates. You bet. Coming up next, in-depth news analysis. You're listening to Korea 24 from KBS World Radio.
Health authorities have declared that the seventh wave of the COVID-19 pandemic in Korea has begun. The daily case count reached the highest level in two months on Wednesday, staying over 60,000 for a second day. The indoor mask mandate and the seven-day mandatory quarantine for infected patients are set to remain in place for now. To get some expert analysis on the current coronavirus situation and whether this new wave could be the last hurdle to cross before the pandemic ends, we're joined on the line now by two guests. First, we have Dr. Yu Byung-wook from the International Healthcare Centre of Suncheonhyang University Hospital in Seoul. Professor Yu, welcome back to the show. Hello. Good evening. Thank you for having me. And we also have with us uh, Yi Hansung, Doctor of Internal Medicine at Severance Hospital in Seoul. Dr. Yi, it's good to have you back on the show as well. It's been a long time. Thank you for having me back. Yes, first, uh, could you both give us a sense of what the pandemic situation is like currently on the ground in the hospitals where you work? Dr. E, let me start with you. Uh, the health authorities have said today that the seventh wave has started, but have you felt that in your hospitals yet? Sure. Uh, so I'm running the ER department, the internal section, internal medicine section of the ER, actually, so there's definitely uh, been a notice, notable uptick in cases of COVID-19 compared to the previous, previous month. Uh, we are seeing more referral patients who test coronavirus positive from the long-term care facilities, uh, which house chronic ill patients, our own oncology, hematology patients who have received immunosuppressing chemotherapy or mm. those who are on immunosuppressants for various reasons, such as having received organ transplants or having diagnosed with autoimmune diseases, having uh, begun to be, uh, visit the ER testing positive. This seems to be an iteration of the previous year. First, it was the ones with the weaker immune system that were infected, and now we are afraid that it won't take too long for the virus to spread throughout the community to infect the rather healthy population. And once again, we would experience another wave that will crowd our ER. I see. Dr. Yu, what about you? Have you uh, seen things in your hospital uh, where you work? Are you seeing signs of a new COVID-19 wave as well? Well, let me introduce my background first. I'm a family medicine physician. At the same time, I'm taking care of the all the foreigners, foreign patients in Seoul in Korea. So, which means super speakers Spanish, French, and English. So, as a severance, one of the good choice, but they came to Suncheonyang is uh, another, another, not the English speaking foreign, foreign patient. They come in too. So, there are not much option. They come to ask the health as a medicine, especially the COVID. So, I can tell first. So now we can, I can reflect over the, our foreign patients. They are not afraid of the COVID, not anymore. So they are still complaining why I wear the mask even in the world. Because who came from the U.S. or many European countries and other countries, actually now I'm in Fiji in South Pacific for work for the Korean government's mission. No one wears the mask. So comparatively, the level of defense against COVID-19 in Korean government way in their government way, the different there, so they feel a little weird. But anyway, Sun Chanyang, where I'm working, we take care of two different ways of the management. 
First, internal yes, who are staying in hospital, we are very strictly controlled, same as like the, under the pandemic in the world crisis. But our patients where are working, who have a coughing or who had a fever, firstly, we are allowed to come to the hospital and be in first and front line, some doctor we attend as, as same as like before the COVID crisis, but we are wearing a mask. So patient, they feel more easy as case of our patient, but absolutely they have to wear a mask when they enter the hospital. Mm. But Sun Chanyang, where I work, or I believe the hospital nearly same, who got the coughing, who got a fever, who had a symptom of respiratory, they can come and register it and do attend the face-to-face, wear a mask, see the patient. Right, I see. So you're telling us about the mask situation. Uh, because of this latest wave, the authorities uh, in Korea have said they will keep the indoor mask mandate in place. Uh, currently, uh, South Korea remains the only OECD member country requiring masks to be worn in all indoor settings. Uh, so I can understand perhaps the frustrations that some of your uh, foreign patients uh, have been expressing to you. Dr. E. What do you think about Korea being one of the very few countries in the world where a mask indoor mandate is still in place? How necessary is it still, do you think? Well, I think there is absolutely no doubt that these kind of measures work and keeps the number of cases down when compared to a no-mask policy. The problem is that you can't really exactly measure the effectiveness of an indoor mask because there are so many other factors that might contribute to causing and preventing the disease at the same time. And this failure in finding the exact number of effectiveness is what I think is causing the officials to hesitate uh, uh, in lifting the mandates. Right, so perhaps uh, not enough data. Uh, Another restriction that's still in place is the uh, seven-day quarantine requirement for COVID-19 patients. Uh, Dr. Yu, how important is it to maintain this rule? Do you think removing such a rule uh, would increase the number of uh, coronavirus cases? Well, let me tell you. So quarantine, quarantine means in originate from Latin word and Italian word, quarantina is a 14-day, four zero days for after the shipping. So for overseas uh, crews and the back to home, they should be stayed for four zero days, 40 days, quarantina to stay because the, our the middle centuries, middle, middle centuries, the people also, they believe they have to be precaution. The people are they're very new. So for, it was two weeks. It was three days. It was five days. They say seven days. So under the corona crisis, the government and health authorities said, medical professional, you can stay only three or five days or seven days in quarantine back to work. But nowadays, we showing the new another restriction. So how come? So our dear audience, they believe which is the good number, which is the right number. Actually, there are no answer about mm. the number. Mm. So this such a kind of rule we are recommending to Unknown people be aware of some risk. So, word of the two weeks, word of the one week, word of the five days, depend on the number, the so way on the 
announcing of the risk or the virus or the hazard is a difference. Seven day means scientifically, I don't know exactly, it will help 100% because someone who's still spreading the virus, but who or only the seven days enough. But anyway, this wording to the peoples in the community means now COVID-19 situation is getting worse again. So we have to be aware of this condition, not same as like to a couple of months before or the one or two years before, not like this, but many people are now easing and losing of the attention of COVID-19, but this wording probably helped the people be recognized to the condition of COVID-19 in Korea now. Right, so I, I feel like you're saying while it may not be completely, uh, while it may not completely stop COVID nineteen, the spread of COVID nineteen, it's still an effective tool that we have, uh, one of the best tools that we have to try and stop the spread uh, of the disease currently. Now, on top of COVID concerns, the country is also seeing an increase in seasonal flu cases in recent weeks, adding to growing concerns of a twindemic with COVID nineteen. Uh, the week starting October 23rd saw patients with flu-like symptoms jump 22.4% from the previous week. Dr. E, first, how concerned are you about a twindemic? And then second, how can we also tell the difference between the flu and COVID-19? Because they have a very similar symptoms. Well, twindemic uh, is totally possible. We have to be on the watch of what happened in the southern hemisphere in the summer. Uh, um, based on what happened in the southern hemisphere, it's totally possible that we might ex- experience a twin pandemic uh, in our country and the northern hemisphere uh, in December. Um, for our listeners, uh, we would know that it's caused by different kinds of viruses. COVID-19 is kind of a coronavirus uh, and has been around since 2020 in our country. And now a subvariant of the Omicron is causing uh, the epidemic. The flu virus is caused by the influenza virus, which causes the seasonal flu each year. Mm. The symptoms are very similar uh, between the two. It's almost non-distinguishable. Uh, The early COVID-19 was said to have caused more sensory loss in smell or taste, but it is is proving to be less uh, true for Omicron, Mm. which symptoms have tendency for sore throats. Again, this tendency is not applicable for all patients who are cheering up at the uh, um, clinics uh, and suspected to have respiratory illnesses and have to wait until their tests results uh, are are returning. Clinically, the distinctive features uh, can be more obvious on CAT scans as COVID-positive patients without any symptoms can show distinctive pneumonia patterns, but this is hardly the case in influenza patients. But uh, the bottom line, the clinical, besides uh, the CAT scans, the the clinical symptoms, um, it's the fevers, the coughs, they right. are almost you know, undistinguishable. Right. So the only way really is to uh, tell uh, is uh, to get a test done and uh, wait for the results. So, so in the meantime, exactly. if yeah. you are showing symptoms, uh, uh, you have to be careful uh, of interacting with others in case you, you spread it. 
Dr. Yu, Dr. with flu season upon us, people have been getting flu shots, uh, but the government also just made the latest bivalent COVID-19 boosters available to all adults in Korea from Monday. Some have raised questions about the safety of receiving both the flu shot and the new COVID-19 bivalent booster at the same time. What can you tell us? How safe is this? Well, before I answer, let me say more than 65 years old in the Korean population, already, most of them, not 100%, but many percentile of them already done for flu vaccination. And let me say not 100%, but most of them, especially for more than 75 years, there are very highly high risky and highly risky group of against the COVID-19 they were already done. So, which means they don't worry about the time of the shot. But mainly my concern is 40, 50, 60 young people under the certain so chronic illness like a high blood pressure and diabetes condition, they're usually they get uh, influenza flu shot annually before pandemic. But this time we have a different situation. Also, year 2020 and 2021, so especially 2021, we saying so better to have COVID-19 vaccination in order at least the four weeks difference. We still remember about this word. That's why we are still confusing and we're so afraid about it. But I can tell there are very clear principles of the vaccination. So if you want to have vaccination same day, same time, so actually no problem. For example, mm. like a influenza vaccination with a purchase vaccination to both are together, different arm, technically no problem. But still we are worried about the COVID vaccination can cause thrombosis and other unexpected complications. We heard and we saw that. That's why we so afraid of having both together. But in medical evidence and technical issue, I can tell so our dear audience, you can have a flu shot and the brand new COVID-19 Bible to vaccination same day, they're on technically no problem. Well, that's encouraging to hear. The bottom line is it is safe to get both shots. OK, let's get back to COVID-19 before we go. The South Korean government has warned that the daily tally could spike to 200,000 in this latest wave. Authorities once again urged the public to get booster shots to avoid severe symptoms and adhere to basic quarantine habits such as consistent ventilation and indoor mask use. Dr. E, before we go, how concerned are you about this latest wave? And could this be the last hurdle that we overcome uh, before the end of the pandemic? Uh, I think we do have to embrace for a high number of cases because of the low number of the vaccination rates. As I mentioned before, we are seeing an increased high number of COVID patients, but uh, I am not noticing an aggressive vaccination campaign compared to the last season. Mm. Uh, people should be reminded that the last year's vaccination might not be effective for this winter. And uh, even though you do get vaccinated, it takes time for the vaccines to work. And for the outlook, I am a glass half full type of person, but I think we still have two or three more years to go because 
uh, I have seen on the news and I heard the, the lead person of the uh, infection uh, uh, advisor, advisory panel say that only 35% of the uh, total population have the antibodies. So uh, based on that comment, I think we still have about two, three years of, of this pandemic uh, that we have right. to, to bear. Yeah. So it still might be too early to declare an end of the pandemic. Uh, right. So uh, it's a reminder for people to uh, get boosters if you can. Exactly. Dr. Yu, do you agree with that assessment? Absolutely. I 100% agree with the Professor Lee because his word is kind of standard recommendation. So I can add more a little bit about this. So before pandemic, we already get used to having the flu vaccination in more than 65 years and the younger generation because if we get used to, we know it has helped a lot or helps us. But the brand new COVID vaccination, we have certain parts, certain population have the bad experience. I fully understand because I'm also one of this, but I agree to Professor Lee's comment, 100%. Okay, with that, uh, we'll wrap it up there for today. We've been speaking to Dr. Yu Byung-wook and Dr. Yi Han-sung. Thank you both for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index rose 25.37 points, or 1.06% on Wednesday, ending the day at 2,424.41. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also rose, gaining 1.27 points, or 0.18%, closing the day at 714.60. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 20.11 against the dollar, ending the day at 1,364.81. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We continue on now to our daily segment, Korea Trending, rounding up some of the other news stories that have been trending online in Korea today. And joining us in the studio now is Diane Yu, who has been bringing these stories for us this week. Diane, hello, and it's good to see you again. Good to see you. Hello, Jango. Okay, so what topics do you have for us today? So first, we'll start with some exciting news for the South Korean baseball club SSG Landers as they claim their first Korean series title in their second season in the league. Next, we'll talk about some South Korean actor Lee Jung-jae making the list of GQ UK's 2022 Men of the Year. And lastly, we'll finish with the largest ever lottery prize won in history worth 2.04 billion US dollars. Okay, so we start with some sporting news and a landmark title in Korean baseball. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more? So the SSG Landers have landed on the top of South Korean baseball on Tuesday, becoming the 2022 Korean Series champions. The Landers finished off the Kiyom Heroes in six games in the best of seven series with a 4-3 victory at their home field, Incheon SSG Landers Field, west of Seoul. Veteran outfielder Kim Gangmin became the oldest Korean Series MVP after hitting a walk off three home three run home run in game five right and this win is especially significant because the landers they're 
a relatively new team, right? Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful news for the club as this is their first Korean baseball organization championship since being rebranded after retail giant Shinsegae Group purchased the SK Wyverns two years ago. Also, the Landers have become the first wire-to-wire team to advance to the Korean series in the history of KBO, which celebrates its 40th anniversary this year. Wire-to-wire is a term used in sports where a team has held the lead for the entire uh, competition. Mm. The good news does not end here. By accommodating more than 980,000 fans and spectators on home ground alone throughout the regular season this year, the team broke the record for most spectators. Tickets for all four home games during the Best of Seven series were sold out. Yes, it's a phenomenal achievement by the team. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure the Landers' owner, Jung Yong-jin will be particularly happy as well. For sure. His love towards the SSG Landers is like no other. Jung regularly visited the club's games to encourage and support players. Interestingly, one hour before the start of Game 5 of the Korean series, he made a surprising move by announcing the decision to extend manager Kim Won-young's contract as a measure to give a sense of stability to the team, amid rumors that the manager would not return if they did not win the championship. He savored the victory with the players, crying tears of joy, and was pictured being tossed in the air by the players and celebrating the lifting of the trophy. (laughs) After the game, he thanked the fans and said, quote-unquote, I won to give all the honours to fans. Yes, some might have doubted the lofty ambitions the team had when it was first brought out by mm-hmm. Shin Sege Group a couple of years ago, but they have proved any doubters wrong and it looks like they're going to be a force to be reckoned with for, sure. for the foreseeable future. Let's uh, move on to our second story now. What do you have for us? South Korean actor Lee Jung-jae was named in the 25th GQ Men of the Year honorees list, selected by the British men's magazine GQ UK on November 4th. GQ Men of the Year recognizes the best and brightest talent from across culture, sports, and entertainment. The men's magazine said it's been a huge year for the 49-year-old South Korean actor as he won the Emmy for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Drama Series for starring in Kearney Lefisic's most watched show ever, Squid Game, This is coupled with a directorial debut for the movie Hunt. And it wasn't just the Emmy. He received many other uh, renowned awards as well, right? Right. In addition to the 74th Primetime Emmy Awards, he has won the Best Actor Award at major American awards ceremonies, including the Screen Actors Guild Awards, the Independent Spirit Awards, and the Critics' Choice Awards. But it looks like his talents don't just lie in acting, as Hunt, Jung's directorial debut film, was officially invited to the 75th Cannes Film Festival and the 47th Toronto Film Festival and the 55th Sitges Film Festival. Yes, and he's also been cast as the male lead in a new Star Wars series to be shown on Disney Plus Mm -hmm. as well. So it's perhaps no surprise that GQ UK chose him as one of the honorees of uh, four men of the year this Mm -hmm. year. Who else is on the list along with Chung? The full list of GQ Men of the Year honorees include 19 male and female talents from around the world. Some noticeable standouts are actor Joseph Quinn from another Netflix phenomenon, Stranger Things, the UK's long-distance running hero, Sarmo Farah, an English artist and stage designer, S. Devlin, the British designer who has masterminded stunning stages for the likes of Beyonce, Adele, and Dua Lipa was also included on the list. So some impressive company that he's keeping Mm -hmm. on that list indeed. Yes. Okay, let's uh, move on to our final story. What else has been trending? 
The largest ever lottery prize in history finally has a winner. The U.S. lottery's official website on Tuesday showed a ticket holder in California had the winning numbers of the $2 billion Powerball jackpot. Officials did not identify the lucky winner, but what we do know is that the ticket was sold at Joe's Service Center in Altadena, California, and the latest jackpot is larger than the previous record. Business owner Joe Chahayed, who sold the lucky ticket, has received a bonus cash reward from the Powerball of $1 $1 million. Right, so he got quite a bonus as well. Mm-hmm. The jackpot, $2 billion. That is uh, pretty incredible. You said it's a record, but uh, I would have been surprised even with a $1 billion jackpot. Mm-hmm. Does the Powerball often go over a billion dollars? Not really. It only has four uh, precedents where they went over $1 billion. But none of them comes close to Tuesday's purse. The price marks the largest ever in lottery history. The jackpot had been rolling higher through 40 consecutive drawings since August 3rd this year, when a ticket in Pennsylvania scored $206.9 million. Initially, the jackpot for Monday night's drawing was estimated at $1.9 billion, but swelled to $2.4 billion after a delay of more than 10 hours due to more time needed to complete security protocols. The winner of this jackpot can choose to take the pre-tax $2 billion as an annuity spread over three decades or as a reduced immediate pre-tax lump sum of $997.6 million. If the person were to choose the lump sum of cash option, the ultimate tax bill would partly depend on their state of residence. Right, I believe after tax, it'll probably be about a billion dollars, mm-hmm. but still, it's a billion dollars. It's Yes. Uh, What kind of odds did the winner have to overcome to win this jackpot? According to the Multi-State Lottery Association, the odds of winning the Powerball are in one in 292.2 million. Considering that the probability of being struck by lightning is known to be 1 in 600,000, winning a lottery is equivalent to the probability of being struck by lightning 487 (laughs) times. And considering how only four jackpots have been over $1 billion, this time's $2 billion price makes the chance even slimmer. I mean, Diane, what would you do with a billion dollars? I don't know where to start. Yeah, I don't think I would know where to begin either. It is quite the windfall. Mm -hmm. That's all for Korea Training Today. Diane, thank you. Uh, It's been great to have you on the show this week and we'll hopefully see you again soon. Thanks for having me. Next up, we're joined by our literary critic, Barry Welsh, for our weekly segment, Korea Book Club. Here, we delve into the world of Korean literature through works available in translation and beyond. So, Barry, hello. It's uh, great to see you. Hope you've been well. Yes, very well. Good to see you again. Okay, so what book are you introducing to our listeners today? Well, this evening we're reviewing a short story called Raptors Upstream by Huang Chong-un and translated by Agnil Joseph. The Korean title is Sangruen Mengumru and it was originally published uh, in Korean in 2013, the fall issue of a literary magazine called Chaungwa Moum or Consonants and Vowels in English. And then it was included in a collection of Huang's 
a story is called Being uh, Nobody in 2016. But this English translation was published as part of the 10th anniversary edition of the Korean Literature Now magazine, which we've uh, dipped into several times. Uh, and the translator of today's story, Agnel Joseph, is also the editor-in-chief uh, of Korean Literature Now. And you can, of course, subscribe to the magazine and uh, access most of its content for free on its website. And it's an incredible resource uh, for anyone who's interested in Korean literature. Uh, today's writer, Huang chong uh is someone we've covered uh, before. We reviewed both of her novels that have been translated into English, uh, 100 Shadows and I'll Go On. And we praise both of those stories for their uh, you know, very sort of sensitive and insightful depictions of people who've been marginalised in uh, different ways. And in today's story, Raptors Upstream, uh, we find Huang in a very similar uh, territory. She's writing about an underprivileged family and their life trials. Right, so as you said, we've talked about her before. Huang is a writer with a significant following, especially among millennial readers. Her early short stories and especially her debut novel, A Hundred Shadows, endeared her to readers of this generation. In fact, she was sometimes called a spokesperson for the Hell Chosun generation, a term that was popular around the early 2010s. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also built a following with uh, two successful book podcasts, cementing her reputation as a thoughtful critic and fan, as well as creator. So with all that in mind, then, tell us more about this work today, uh, Barry. What is Huang focusing on in Raptors Upstream? Right. So this is a story of uh, a family's misfortune, and it's told from the uh, perspective of uh, an outsider to the family. Uh, We have an unnamed narrator, a young woman who relates a story uh, about her relationship and a trip she went on with her ex-boyfriend, Jehi, and his family. Uh, And we learn that Jehi's family had, at one point, they were relatively uh, well-off and successful uh, merchants with a comfortable let's say just a a generally happy, comfortable, uh, middle-class lifestyle. Mm. Uh, They ran a a fruit business and they were generally uh, content and happy with their place uh, on the social ladder. However, they're conned by an acquaintance who uh, steals a significant sum of money from them and who it also turns out had built up uh, you know, quite uh, substantial debts using Jehi's family name. Uh, and as such, the family is placed in a very difficult uh, quandary. What do they do now? The thief um, uh, proves Im- impossible to track down. They can't trace this person. So there's no option of justice uh, in that direction. Uh, Jehi's parents contemplate the uh, the unthinkable, uh, you know, killing themselves and their, their young children. But of course, they decide against this path. Um, so what then? What options are available to them? Jehi's father wants to put the children up for adoption, but the, his mother refuses. So they decide the only option they have is to buckle down and try and pay off this, you know, massive, overwhelming debt they've been uh, unfairly uh, burdened with. And Huang writes that Jehi's family never recovered from this fall. Uh, and over the rest of the story, uh, she shows how their lives changed and why they possibly made the wrong decision. Yes, uh, this story is particularly haunting as there have been some incidents which have made headlines in the last year or so in Korea of families falling into financial hardship and doing the unthinkable you mentioned earlier, killing Mm -hmm. themselves and their children. 
Uh, but as you said, this story was published in 2013, so long before these incidents. But it shows how uh, this has been a persistent issue for a long time in Korea. We've mm-hmm. seen instances of fictional stories in TV and film as well, such as Squid Game and Parasite, uh, that show families and individuals resorting to desperate measures to climb out of poverty, financial hardship and improve their circumstances. So this is a theme, uh, sadly, which has been touched upon in many areas. How does Huang then tackle these issues? issues and what does she have to say about inequality mm-hmm. right so you you could uh, imagine in the hands of uh, another writer it, this uh, would become you know a, a simple a more simple morality uh, tale you know you have a good family who makes a mistake uh, and their judgment and they see their position in society crumble uh, as their neighbours, uh, who, whom they've considered friends, turn on them and, you know, expel them uh, from their uh, midst, uh, from where they'd previously been very welcome. And that is what happens in the story. So Jehi's family, they have to sell their shop. They have to move into uh, a much smaller and very cramped apartment. They take the uh, eldest daughter out of school and they, she has to get a job. They start marrying off the younger sisters. Uh, but, but despite all of these efforts, you know, getting out from under this debt is almost impossible and they become old uh, with this debt as yet you know, fully unpaid, the debt's still there Uh, the daughters, even though the family you know, marries them off um, they never get to attend university and essentially marry into you know, similarly impoverished uh, circumstances, sort of comment on perhaps how difficult it is to you know, marry your way up the social mm. ladder, uh, and the narrator wonders, you know, at what price did their sort of their proud stance of paying back the debt come? So she says, "I thought it was immoral." Uh, she wonders, why didn't they run away, start somewhere new, uh, start somewhere else instead of condemning their children uh, to to the lives they now lead? Uh, and Jehi's family has done what we might call the honourable thing, you know, uh, uh, we would think this was the the uh, uh, honourable and fair path to, to follow, perhaps. But we're also led to question, you know, in a society so unfair, uh, so stacked against those with debts and low incomes, can we really consider this sort of supposed noble path to be the moral or correct choice? Indeed, it's a very difficult question. Uh, on one hand, we might generally think that, of course, we should pay our debts. But at the same time, if the terms of the debt are so extreme for the one paying, can this really be called just in any way? Is it possible to break out, this, break out of this sort of cycle? So how does Huang develop this idea then? What are your final takeaways from it, Barry? Right, so uh, on the surface, you know, Raptors Upstream, it, it's a deceptively simple story, uh, but I think it has, you know, sort of subtleties and layers that you might uh, miss. Uh, it's actually very layered and thorny and, and quite a difficult story. You could see a more simplistic version uh, of the story where, you know, the family takes on this unfair debt, they work hard and eventually pay it off and they're restored to their former position in the pecking order. That could almost like a, you know, a Dickens story or a Victorian novel or something about someone escaping the poor house uh, or uh, you know, the, the debtor's prison. But that isn't the case here. The family does work hard for many years to, to fulfil this obligation. 
but Huang just calmly shows us how this burden crushes their uh, their spirit, it ruins their interfamily relationships, and that there's no real uh, honour or pride to be taken in, in shouldering the burden of a cruel debt that you can't realistically be expected to pay. Instead, your family will suffer, your relationships will suffer, and so on. Uh, and there's an excellent essay in uh, uh, by a, a, a literary critic called Huang Chong-a uh, about the story in, in which they write, uh, their self-pride fails to save them, uh, and instead they end up imprisoning themselves within an endless orbit that saps their life little by little. Ultimately, their honourable decisions only amount to attachment to conventional morals. So it's really a very complicated story poses some very challenging questions. Uh, and like you mentioned, it's also a story that connects to wider issues in Korea and elsewhere as well. Yes, it sounds like quite a powerful commentary on uh, this aspect of Korean society, I guess. The trap of poverty, or at least the trap of being able to, uh, being of being unable to free uh, oneself from living a life where you're constantly under financial pressure. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a work that will indeed speak to a lot of people. It's called uh, Raptors Upstream by Hwang jung and that was our pick for Korea Book Club this week. Barry, thank you for bringing us that work to look at, and uh, we'll see you again next time. Thank you. OK, take care. Scott Kelly, former NASA astronaut, and you're listening to Korea 24. We finish up with our closing segment, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers. And for that, we have Walter Lee once again joining us in the studio. Walter, hello. It's great to see you. Hello, Jungho. It's always good to see you. OK, so what do you have for us today? Okay, so first is an article coming out of the Korea Times by Go Dong-hwan on the Busan Job Fair. Okay, so the Busan Job Fair, I have some notes here. It says, uh, for any Koreans interested in the Job Fair, it starts tomorrow, uh, 10th of November to Saturday, 12th of November at Bexco. Walter, what more can you tell us? Yeah, so it might be a great opportunity for some Koreans looking to work overseas, as 74 major foreign companies from 12 different countries uh, will be in Busan looking for future employees to help move their companies forward. Now, this is the first in-person job fair in Busan in three years following COVID-19. Now, the job fair is co-hosted by the Ministry of Employment and Labor and the Busan Metropolitan City. And I understand this job fair isn't just for people looking for work. Yes, that is correct. So this is actually a great opportunity to to learn about how certain countries and regions will plan to scout Korean workers for the future. Now, experts from Australia, North America and Europe will be the ones giving lectures on this. Uh, The Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Korea will also be there to hold lectures on working holiday visas. And the National Institute for International Education will present a lecture related to work, English study and travel programs. Now, job seekers who are into logistics, design, IT, and hotel and service industries might want to go on the Saturday to to hear other workers' experience in countries such as Japan and the United States. Okay, and for more information, check out tomorrow's Career Times. Uh, let's move on to our next story. What do you have for us? Yeah, so next out of the Korea Herald by Ji Yeun is for anyone interested in the song Seven Nation Army. 
Right, the Seven Nation Army, that's、uh, the White Stripes, right? That is correct. So, singer songwriter Jack White has played his first concert here in South Korea on Tuesday night to a packed crowd at the Yes 24 Live Hall in、right. Eastern Seoul. So, though there were some Korean fans, it was reported that a large majority of the audience were actually foreigners. <laughs> the, the crowd reportedly got wildly excited、uh, over White's performance, singing along, dancing, and headbanging. Now, White is currently on his supply chain issues tour. Right, so did he play、uh, Seven Nation Army and some of his classics? And、uh, what was his impression of South Korea? Well, the rock and roll star played a back catalogue of all his famous hits, not just from his most famous band, The White Stripes, but also from his time at the Raconteurs and The Dead Weather. So the musician showed his love by saying that he really appreciated being able to see such enthusiastic people here in South Korea and that he wishes that America had the same enthusiasm as well. <laughs> White also managed to see a Korean series baseball game between the SSG Landers and the Kium Hero. The day before his concert, praising on Koreans' involvement when cheering on their teams. Yeah, I'm curious to see what his concerts like, were like <laughs> in America. Okay.、Uh, well, wrap it up there for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for bringing us those stories, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. And that's all from us here on Career 24 today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So do join us again then to continue to get your daily dose of Korean news analysis. Till then, I've been your host, Kwon Jang-ho, and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio strives to promptly update our listeners on safety procedures during emergency situations. The following are recommended guidelines to follow in case of high levels of fine dust. Before going outside, check the air quality by visiting online resources or checking your local weather forecast. When the level of fine dust is high, avoid outdoor activities such as hiking, biking, or field sports. Wear protective gear such as masks, glasses, and hats. Close your windows, doors, and dry your laundry inside. Wash your face often and make sure to also blow your nose regularly. If you have to leave your home, try to use public transportation in order to reduce air pollution. Take a shower after returning home to avoid skin irritation and rinse your sinuses if possible. Before preparing food, wash your hands and make sure to wash fruit and vegetables thoroughly before eating them. Please check our website at world.kbs.co.kr for up to date information and procedures.